ever heard of the Da Vinci Code? How many of you have seen the movie? I see a big difference there between not hearing how many seeing the movie. Kind of glad of that. Really, what what is the Da Vinci Code when you come right down to it? I'm thinking in terms of the movie at this point. Seems to me to be a project to portray the church as corrupt. Amen? That's the way it hits me anyway. And it seems to bring up all sorts of conspiracy theories. Uh, if I remember right, it touches on the Knights Templar. It touches on the Illuminati. Or at least these are other sorts of uh, conspiracy theories that have grown out of such things. It calls into question the Masonic Lodge, perhaps, when we think of conspiracy theories. I think also, when I think of the Vichy Code, of the Holy Grail. What's the Holy Grail? Communion cup. Some people would say the cup which Jesus used in the Last Supper. Matter of fact, is it Indiana Jones in the search for the Holy Grail? Okay. It, it seems like in, in current popular thinking, they want to present this item, this object, as, as giving eternal life. And they kind of miss the whole point, don't they? I don't know that holy, the Holy Grail is even a good term. I don't think it is. It conjures up all kinds of bad images to me. And I, I, jump, I jump from that idea of the Da Vinci Code to something called British Israelism. Anybody ever hear of that years back? It's kind of hasn't been talked about in decades and decades. I don't think that I've heard it actually propounded in my lifetime, except maybe. Uh, Speaker by Herbert Dunger Armstrong. I think he was one that was kind of in that vein. The idea that the lost tribe of Israel, and I don't know where that comes from biblically, the lost tribe of Israel became Great Britain. And so there's this right to be called the children of God, the people of God, simply because you're an Englishman. And then that sort of got transferred over to being an American. And the idea that somehow God favored America sprang up from that and perhaps other ways. Um, America's been called a Christian nation. Um, I'm not sure how appropriate that is. How many of you remember Ronald Reagan talking about us as a, a shining city set on a hill? How many? What do you think? How does that apply to America? It's interesting that that term has been, I think, both used and abused. The pilgrims, the Puritans didn't use that term, and that was really what they were looking to do, to set up this country where there was true freedom of religion, and God was truly honored throughout the whole land. Who asked the question, how's that working for you? Is that Dr. Phil? How's that working for you? I think in terms of, a, of manifest destiny this morning, and that term came to be coined in the middle of the 19th century and applied to America. Matter of fact, in 1838, John L. O'Sullivan, uh, a well-known writer, editor, wrote these words. 
The nation of many nations. The nation of many nations. This place in America where nations come together. The nation of many nations is destined to manifest to mankind the obedience of divine principles. To establish on earth the noblest temple ever dedicated to the worship of the Most High, the sacred and the true. That was the original concept of manifest destiny back in the middle of the 19th century. But it quickly turned into what some have labeled American expansionism. And really, that was an idea that to bring democracy across the whole continent of North America, from Mexico through Canada. That was the original intent of Manifest Destiny, to bring democracy to the world, and then perhaps to spread out from there. But if you read history today, the rewriting of history, if you will, it seems to me that history sees only evil intent in everything that was done to establish this country. And it ignores all the Christian connection that is truly there. I'm not going to get into that this morning. Just mention it. Because when I think of manifest destiny, I want first of all to say that we have a manifest destiny. And it has absolutely nothing to do with nationalism, or expansionism, or even democracy. Now, our manifest destiny is not to be exporting democracy to the world. That's, that's tied to that 19th century expansionism. And perhaps it's still alive and well in this country, even in the government, as we attempt sometimes to export our way of government, our way of thinking to the world around us. It has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with America. Our manifest destiny has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Amen? Our manifest destiny as believers in Christ has everything to do with Jesus. Christ is all and in all. I think too, of course that's who we are, it's new life. We think about Christ is all and in all. I think that even works for our denominational model or our denominational purpose to know Christ and to make him known. It's called to know Christ. And it is truly all about always growing into his likeness for everyone who claims his name. That is our manifest destiny. Christ likeness, if you will. Our destiny will be manifested in Jesus. Our scripture this morning talks about, in verse 26, a hidden mystery. The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. That's all the generations before Jesus. That's the time of the Old Testament. That's the time of all the writings of the Old Testament, from Adam through Jesus. The mystery which has been hidden from those past ages, those past generations. That which was hidden truly even from Israel and from Judah up to the time of Christ. Israel and Judah worshipped and trusted in God. They had given them a system of sacrifices and rituals by which to worship Him, by which to approach Him, sin offering, uh, all sorts of offerings by which they offered up to God the only thing He had given them as payment for their sins. They didn't fully understand salvation. They didn't truly understand 
what God had in mind to do for them in the person and the completed work of Jesus Christ. They didn't know about Jesus. They were still looking for the promised Messiah. The one that they knew God had promised would come to renew them to be God's people. That mystery was manifested to the saints, according to verse 26. And so, many of the people to whom Paul wrote had the privilege, the blessing of knowing Jesus face to face, of seeing him walking in the flesh. Now, maybe not so many there at Colossae, but hundreds of people, thousands of people alive at that time that have seen Jesus face to face. That's the New Testament time. Some had met him face to face. Paul sort of claims to have met Jesus face to face on the Damascus Road, which was after his resurrection and ascension. Somehow Jesus appeared to Paul as he traveled to form the Damascus Road. He had the privilege, the blessing, to be confronted personally by Jesus Christ after the ascension. Literally in the same situation in which we are today. Christ in heaven. Maybe intercession for the saints at the Father's right hand. Same privilege we have today. But many of the Gentile believers have not seen Jesus in the flesh face to face. Not even as Paul had in that vision. And so they have the witness of others that tells them about Jesus and brings them hopefully to meet him face to face in a spiritual way. Not necessarily in a vision, certainly not in the flesh, but somehow to come face to face with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Savior of all who will put their faith and trust in Him. That was the purpose of their witness. Our destiny has been manifested in Jesus, manifested to the saints, to the believers. And it's really the same in our day. We have the witness of those who have gone before us. We have the witness of those who have met Jesus before we have. And the whole purpose is us, for us to step into a personal experience of Jesus Christ. To get to know Him face to face, if you will. To know Him in a deep and loving way. To get to know Him as Savior and friend and elder brother and bridegroom of the church. To get to know Jesus in a way that people of the Old Testament could not know him. To get to know Jesus. That's our manifest destiny. And so, we proclaim Jesus. Crucified, risen, and coming again. And we invite people simply to believe and be saved. Simply to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ in the cross and in the resurrection. In the cross for the payment of our sin. In the resurrection, breaking the power of sin and death for us. That we might overcome sin in our death. We proclaim Christ. That was Rick's point last week, right? Right, Rick? Nobody else has answered. I think it was. <laughs> I think it was, too. And that's what it's all about. We preach Christ. I think that was something that Paul always did. I disagree with Rick here a little bit, and he knows I'm going to say this this morning. 
seems to me it's okay to disagree as long as we don't become disagreeable. Is that okay with you? We agree to disagree without becoming disagreeable, and on many points of scripture we can do that. The basics, we better agree or we're not Christian. At least in my humble opinion. We don't believe on the understanding that Jesus is both divine and human, born of a virgin, suffered, death, died, crucified, risen, and coming again. Then we've got a problem. Because that's Christianity. But on some points we might not agree. And so I, I, I think even in the Areopagus, when Paul pointed to a statue and said, you worship an unknown God, I come to tell you who he is. He went on to preach Jesus, crucified, risen, and coming again. That's the point of reaching out in his name, isn't it? To present Jesus as the one and only Savior of the world, as the mystery hidden in ages past, but give one to us in Jesus Christ once for all time. The sacrifice of sin, all the sin of the world, payment for your sin and mine. That's what Paul preaches. And if I read the tail end of that account of the story at the Eropagus, right, I, I see these words in Acts 17, 34. Some men joined him and believed. Some men joined him and believed. Isn't that evangelism? Seeing people believe in Jesus Christ, that's effective evangelism. Now, it's got to be effective by giving the right message Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. The object is to see people come to Jesus. There's one concept of evangelism that I first saw laid out in a book uh, entitled Eternity in Their Hearts. I can't remember who wrote it, I didn't look it up to try to remember. It was a book on missions. And the basic premise of that book was that God left some shadow, well, shadow's not the right word, some inkling, some small light within the earliest religions of who he is. That somehow God in his sovereignty and in his love and in his mercy revealed around the world who he is. I think that's why we can look at Romans 1 and say, we've got no excuse. The invisible things of him are clearly seen, being understood by them which are made, so that they are without excuse. I think it's verse 18. Or 20, somewhere there. One concept of evangelism is to build bridges to help people accept Jesus and to meet them where they are and preach Jesus. I'm okay with that as long as we preach Christ. Crucified, risen, and coming again. The only way to the Father. That seems to me to be our manifest destiny. And in that, there is no expectation of glory here and now. There is no expectation of, of somehow being a light to the world ourselves here and now, if you will. I think of the prayer of Jabez. How many have read the book, The Prayer of Jabez? One, two, three. Four. Anybody else? Five. May I suggest you forget everything you read? 
in my humble opinion, seems to me to push on to something called name it and claim it by some of his opponents. Claim that territory for Christ. I'm not so sure about that. I see no promise in this life of glory. Rather, I see in, in the book of Matthew, right after the Beatitudes in, in verse Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, a promise, or if you will, even a blessing of persecution. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say, All manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Great is your reward in heaven. Not here. Not now. Great is your reward in heaven. I think we ought to expect a certain amount of persecution here and now when we preach Christ. Because the world doesn't want to hear about him any more today than it did in the year of 33 A.D. The world doesn't want to hear about salvation in Christ now any more than it did when he walked this earth. But that is our hope of glory, Jesus Christ. Our hope is that we may present every man complete. We're to update the language to present every person complete in Christ. And it talks about teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. What's wisdom? I think Rick pointed at this last week. I'm going to read you a definition I came across in the Amplified Bible. A comprehensive insight into the ways and purposes of God. An understanding of, of who He is and, and, and what He does and what He wants. And it seems to me that his purposes are that everyone might be complete in Christ. That means that everyone, first of all, would be saved, that everyone would understand who Christ is and what he's done for them. That they would be then conformed to the image of Jesus, and that their fellowship with God the Father would be restored, because he paid the price for our sins. Amen? Amen. The purposes of God. <laughs> that we might be complete in Christ. Again, I'm referring to the Amplified Bible here. Complete is full-grown, fully initiated, complete and perfect. I like that. That stands up against some sort of secret wisdom, which was part of Gnosticism, against which heresy this book was at least in part written. An argument against some system of handshakes and, and, and passwords that somehow brings us into some secret society. It's a, it's, it's a statement against the ancient mystery religions that say, oh, you have to be initiated into our rights to be part of the inner circle. It's a, it's a word against secret societies and their initiations even today. You see, Jesus is our initiation. Jesus is our initiation through faith, by grace, we're born again. Amen? By the grace of God, by His mercy, by His love, through what Jesus did on the cross, the price for our sin has been paid. 
and we are fully initiated into Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Jesus is our initiation. Jesus is our wisdom. We don't need to attain to degrees. We don't need to pass through chairs. We don't need to somehow go through the rights of mankind. Rather, what we need is this continual growth in Jesus. Continual growth in Jesus, with Him growing in us and us growing in Him. And the goal is to be complete in Jesus Christ. That's what's given here. To be filled up with His person, to be filled up with His love, to be shaped into His likeness, not physically, but spiritually, and perhaps even emotionally, to be like Jesus. in every way. Jesus is our wisdom. Jesus is our life. Paul in Philippians 1.21 put it this way, For me, to live is Christ. Amen? That doesn't just mean reading the scriptures. I can read these all day long, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did in Jesus' day. I can read these all day long and not know Jesus. I can even obey the laws and not know Jesus. Pharisees are an example of the one that. It's not just reading his word. Rather, it's finding all of our reason for being in Jesus. It's being rooted and grounded in Him and letting Him take root in us. It's dying daily to our sinful nature. It's repenting and confessing day by day and trusting in Jesus alone. It's nailing our sinful desires the cross of Christ. To be dead. To be dead. And it's understanding that all we are is hidden in Christ. Is hidden in Christ, held up for that day when He will be glorified. Christ is all. Christ is in all. That's our hope and glory. And one day we will see him face to face and stand with him as he returns with honor and majesty and glory and love. Let me draw a couple of conclusions before I quit this morning. Let me draw a couple of conclusions for America, if you will. I would submit to you that this has never been truly a Christian nation. You okay with that? We were founded, as I read history, on a belief in God. That especially goes to the first settlers, the Puritans, the Pilgrims, who came here for religious freedom, and that was a religious freedom to worship the God of the Bible, to practice their Christianity, this is a, a nation that was founded on biblical principles. Now, I don't think it was a Christian nation, but the Bible was the foundation for our law system. The laws of God became 
the foundation for the laws of this land. And really, it boils down to the same thing we see from Jesus when he said, really, I'm going to put it quickly, this is law, love God, love others. That's it. Love God, love others. I fear, though, that today, government's trying to define how we love others. It is absolutely, completely, positively, fully leaving God out of the picture. Friends, that's never going to honor God. In fact, that's never going to work without God in Jesus in the picture. Never happened. Don't forget the 18th century, actually 19th century, about the middle of the century, there was a loss of Christian focus. At first it was all about living by godly standards. But that quickly began to fade away. And it became an expansionism of, of democracy and privilege and went the wrong direction. And as I look at it today, government's trying to replace God. And I won't go into all of what I believe that portends. But it seems to me that today government is trying to be God to us. And they give entitlements to those of us that hit somewhere 62 or over. They give entitlements to those that never work. Um, the state that the 47% of the people don't pay taxes is true. <laughs> By entitlements, they really want to gain control over us. I don't think it's altruistic. I don't believe that it's truly for the good of the people. I think it's about control. And as this happens, I see that there's less and less tolerance for the people of Jesus. Amen? My perspective, anyway. We seem to be heading in the direction of Canada, where I don't know that I could even say what I've said in the pulpit this morning. That's how far gone that country is. Less and less tolerance for the people of Jesus. It seems to me that government is trying to be an absolute authority. And in that, it's becoming, in my opinion, increasingly like the monarchy that we fought against in the 18th century. My opinion. That's just for America. More important is for the people of Jesus because that's who we are above citizens of America. You okay with that idea? That we are first citizens of heaven and then citizens of the United States? That our manifest destiny is with Jesus in heaven? Not with a government system or society called the United States? And for the people of Jesus, for those who follow him, there is no expectation of glory here and now. Didn't work for Jesus 2,000 years ago, did it? It's not going to work for us today if we truly follow him. But what is right is that we find all of our reason for living in Jesus Christ. Every ounce of our being 
empowered by the presence of His Holy Spirit. Let me read verse 29 from our passage from the Amplified Bible. All the ends stating or writing, For this I labor unto weariness, striving with all the superhuman energy which He so mightily enkindles and works within me. That's a little more wordy than what you're looking at, probably. Here again. For this I labor unto weariness, Paul says. Striving with all the superhuman energy which he so mightily enkindles and works within me. That all might be presented complete in Christ. That's what he's talking about. Superhuman energy. If we are believers in Jesus. If we're living in fellowship with Him. You understand that we have a superhuman energy? No, not in ourselves. We have a person of God named the Holy Spirit. Amen? And the Holy Spirit is a superhuman being, a superhuman power that will work in us and through us, even as Paul reflects here. A power that moves us beyond our own strength. At least when we're focused on Jesus. Because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. To reveal the truth of Jesus Christ. This is a work of God. What He does in us and through us. So all praise goes to Him. Amen. Now let me bring it into focus for us. My prayer is that New Life of Shillington may always be a work of God in us and through us. Amen? My hope, my prayer, my belief at this point in time is that we will focus on God through Jesus. Continue to proclaim his name. Until we see people, ourselves and others, complete in Christ. Until we see a living out of the words of Colossians 3.11, Christ is all and is all. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your love for us. A love that is unending. That we only need to accept. Strengthen us in that love that we may serve you all of our days. Through Christ we pray. Amen. In your bulletins, there should be an insert of a tune called My Hope is...